0: Welcome to the Exploring the Core podcast. I'm your host, Greg Mullen. In this episode, I'm exploring the second most inner layer of my framework that looks at six specific words that we often refer to as attributes or characteristics. And I'll be looking at how each of these six words carries with them a range of behaviors where on either end are potentially unhealthy degrees of each attribute. Because each attribute, does have a healthy balance that relies on our understanding of a situation's context and circumstances. And I'll be starting this episode with a quick description of these attributes, but most of this episode will be dedicated to two conversations I had with professionals who work in the field of behavior change. The first being with Donnie Irahita, a behavior analyst who talks about his approach for addressing challenging behaviors in children. And the second conversation is with Dr. Anton Tolman, a professor of psychology at Utah Valley University who talks about behavior change from his perspective as a clinical psychologist, as well as a research professor working with models of behavior change that actually have strong connections to what we call a growth mindset, which is a very popular concept in education. Now, I'd like to briefly introduce the following six attributes, courage, temperance, pride, friendliness, wittiness, and magnanimity. Each attribute has extreme ranges of behavior that while some might call unhealthy, I'd argue that context and circumstance has a lot to do with how we perceive and describe these ranges of behavior. Let's take the first attribute, courage, which is all about our sense of risk aversion and how much we're willing to forego danger or pain to accomplish a task in different situations. One side of this attribute's range of behavior is an excess of courage, which to some may come across as reckless, while the other extreme would be a deficiency of courage we might describe as cowardice. And we actually talk about this attribute in a lot of different stories and books and movies, and they're fantastic opportunities to have conversations about these attributes and their ranges. For example, In the 2013 Superman movie, Man of Steel, Kevin Costner plays Superman's dad. Well, in the movie, Costner runs into a life-threatening situation to save the family dog from danger during a tornado, which we can call courageous in that he's foregoing danger to accomplish a task. But he ends up hurting his foot, is unable to get to safety, and instead of letting his grown son, Clark Kent, save him in front of a crowd of people before anyone knew about Superman, Kevin Costner holds up his hand to basically say, don't use your powers to save me in front of all these people. Now, comic book fans hotly debate whether this, uh, this scene is nonsensical since Clark could have easily saved his father. But it's this conversation that we're having right now that I'm, I'm saying is so valuable because we won't always agree on what too much courage actually means. Because to define it is to understand not only the context of a situation, but our sense of risk aversion and how much danger or pain we'd be willing to forego to accomplish a task in a particular situation. So by asking at what point would we call someone's behavior reckless? Well, that's something we want our students and children to be open to discussing so they can recognize this range of behavior and be comfortable reflecting on the degree of risk aversion that they're comfortable with understanding that others might not think the same way, which leads us to a more meaningful understanding of empathy, communication, and conflict resolution, and building a stronger understanding of who we are as individuals, rather than who everyone should be based on our individual perspective. And this range of this attribute courage, it isn't just about physical danger or pain. There are plenty of examples where social danger or emotional pain, may have to be considered and knowing where you stand on how much you're willing to forego to accomplish a task is very important to who you are and how you learn and the more we dismiss these conversations the more frustrated we'll get when we don't understand where others are coming from now keep in mind it isn't that we're creating a list of exactly what we do in an infinite number of situations. That would be an unreasonably complicated list to create and keep in our heads. No, what we're doing is exercising an extremely important aspect of critical thinking that's part of who we are. And by developing this part of ourselves with our students, with our children, we as adults get to fine tune our own understanding of what an attribute like courage means in a variety of situations but then we also get to apply that to the kinds of competencies and values and elements of an environment that I've talked about throughout this season. Now, for sake of time, I won't go into this much detail for the rest of the six attributes, but I do want to quickly share a sentence about each one. Temperance. This one is all about self-control and moderation and ranges from having too much of this attribute that we can refer to as insensibility, where we unreasonably limit what makes us happy to an unhealthy extreme, but we can also have too little of this attribute, which is often described as self-indulgent. And between those extremes is temperance and is defined by our capacity to reflect on a situation's context and circumstances. Now, pride, is another attribute that highlights our positive self-image and strong sense of self-efficacy. And it deals with a range of behaviors from vanity or having too much pride in yourself to diffidence, which is having too little pride. Then we have friendliness, an attribute which ranges from an excess we call flattery to a deficiency we might call surliness. Now wittiness, that's our approach toward humor. And this attribute ranges from the silly, self-deprecating buffoonery (laughs) to a degree of boorishness, a dry, insensitive wit that we might describe as honest to a fault. And lastly, we have magnanimity, which is all about how much you're willing to give, and not just of things, but of yourself, and ranges from prodigal or wasteful extravagance to miserly or not at all giving. So we have these six attributes, each with ranges of behaviors. And as we go from childhood to adolescence, we often play with these ranges as situations present themselves to us. And we spend years challenging the boundaries that others place on them and figure out what ranges we're comfortable with and which ranges seem to make others more or less comfortable. Then we decide throughout adolescence and into adulthood, which ranges work for how we want to live our lives. And honestly, we don't really think about this much since as adults, usually we don't have to unless it's something that comes up in a book or a movie that we're already talking about with friends. But we rarely actually talk about the ranges when we talk about how people behave. And the more we as adults normalize these ranges, the more we'll be able to help our students our children come to develop a stronger sense of themselves by making sense of these ranges and what they mean in different situations. And it really doesn't have to be a big ordeal. It can be as simple as us as adults referring to these attributes to talk about the books and movies we're already enjoying. Now, I would love to talk more about each of these ranges for each attribute and maybe I'll add a bonus episode that goes into more examples but I'm just as excited to share two conversations with professionals who work in the field of behavior change. Because as important as these attributes are, it's equally important to not only identify these ranges of behaviors, but also think about how we might be able to change our tendency for one behavior or another in one situation or another. So stick around to hear from Donnie Irahita, a behavior analyst who talks about helping families address challenging child behaviors. Donnie Irohita is a behavior analyst and parent of two in Southern California. And in our conversation, we get into some pretty deep ideas about behavior and how he not only uses certain strategies to help his clients, but he also uses them to help his own children develop the kinds of behaviors his family wants to see in them. Well, we got our chat going pretty casually with a quick question about how he came to become a behavioral analyst, which actually is a pretty interesting story.
1: There was never a plan to learn any of this, first of all. So it started out with just training my dog for movies and commercials and things like that. And so through that process, I had a mentor that basically taught me all the ins and outs of animal behavior, and probably not all of it, but th- he taught me a lot about behavior, and it was really, really interesting. You know, just understanding the differences between different types of animals, and and uh, making the connection with the type of animal you're training, and the environment, and you know, analyzing what what just happened, taking that into into consideration for your next attempt at whatever you're trying to train into that animal. And so it just became a, a an interest of mine. And so I kept learning and learning and learning. And that became a, a thing that I, I had some passion for. It was like fun to train animals. And like, I wanted to help animals that were, um, there was, for example, dogs that weren't able to uh, be adopted because they're their aggressive or um, they were fearful or things like that. And so I was able to help some of the dogs get adopted and things like that, so it became a passion. And then eventually, a, a, uh, I believe she was a board-certified behavior analyst, and she saw how well-behaved my dog was. And so she was asking me about it. And it basically became a, a conversation that led her to invite me to become a behavior therapist um, for children. And that was really interesting to me because you know animals are one thing. When you're considering the behavior of an animal, it, it's on a certain level. But children have an additional level. There's an extra dimension to their thinking, and I don't have a better way to describe it. Uh, if, if an animal's hungry and you put food in front of it, it's going to eat. You know that that's the best example I can give. But if a child's hungry and you put food in front of it, it depends on what else is going on, right? They they may not want to eat. It's a there's a different level of thinking for for children, and so that piqued my interest, and so I began I started working with children with ADHD, autism, uh, Down syndrome pretty much any kind of uh, learning disability or uh, some of the kids I was working with excelled in school, but they struggled with joining a conversation appropriately. And they struggled with the reading social cues from their peers or things like that. And then on the other hand, sometimes I was helping a, a kid learn to feed himself or to dress himself or things like that. So there was a lot of variety and I had to step back and analyze every situation. So that, that became, you know, it just kind of drew me in further and further and further. <laughs> and so that's how I, it kind of became, I became a behavior therapist.
0: One of the things we really got into with regards to behavior change is this idea of having a goal in mind to help shape How you approach a child's behavior, which came up when I asked about how he separates behaviors that children will learn on their own without his help as an analyst or even as a parent versus behaviors he thinks might directly benefit a child if he were to coach them as a behavior analyst.
1: I think that's a lot of behavior in general is picking out what your goal is. If you don't have a goal, it's way too complex to to be effective at any anything if you don't have a an idea of what good looks like there's certain things that a, a child is going to learn one way or another eventually right they're gonna they're gonna pick it up referencing other people or they're, they're gonna learn some things right so in with those types of things i tried to add another element to it have them consider other other aspects of what they're doing, or uh, like like with my daughter, I wanted her to be observant. I wanted her to understand what was happening around her. There are things that I taught her that I don't like. I don't think she would have been as observant as she is, uh, considering uh, people's. Uh, motive, for example, uh, she's very good at, at understanding potentially why somebody did what they did or didn't do something. You know, it helps her navigate uh, social situations. It helps her navigate a lot of situations, right? And I think that's something she may not have learned as well uh, if I didn't purposely uh, focus on that. Um, and there's multiple reasons why why I did that. One of them was to, again, consider uh, motive, right? another one is to help her understand that like it's not as bad as she thinks it is uh i think just over time it wasn't like you know one incident kind of she crossed over it's just over time she eventually says you know she she'll start saying i think this person you know this happened to me i think they did it because of this And, and then you know okay now she's she's it's a part of her process now right And so I I think, yeah, it's hard to define a single moment, but um, you just kind of one day you, you notice, hey, like she's doing it automatically, you know?
0: Donnie's daughter is now in middle school. So I asked him how he and his family managed with his daughter shifting to learning from home during the pandemic. And one of the things that came up was the issue of scheduling and time management, which is usually something a school does for students with a set bell schedule already in place. But learning at home, the student has more responsibility for managing their own time. So it was interesting to hear how he as a parent and as a behavior analyst, approached this kind of change in his daughter's
1: learning environment. Some might uh, be shocked to hear this, but letting her fail was one, one approach. How did she fail? So I know like a lot of parents, you know, like, oh, my gosh, you know, you let your child fail. So uh, by letting her fail, I mean, give her the reins, let her take control for a week. And at the end of the week, go back and, you know, first of all, you're showing trust, right? Hey, I'm going to let you take control of this. You're responsible. And you're, you're meaning what you say, right? Hey, you need to be responsible. And then you got to show that, right? You got to commit to that. So you give, give I gave her a week. You come back in a week, you know, after that week and you assess what happened. Well, you know, this was late. That didn't get turned in. Um, I forgot I missed this zoom class or whatever happened. You go back and say, okay, we need to do this better, you know, and, and you maybe help get some strategies most of the time I didn't actually need to help give the strategies. I just needed to ask, okay, what are you going to do better next time? And uh, so she came you, up with the. Did you own.
0: tell her in advance that you were going to check in every week with her?
1: Um, No, I don't think I did. It was more of a, hey, go for it. And all right, you're responsible now. And yeah, and then so a week later or uh, sometimes it wasn't exactly a week later, right? Maybe, maybe it was five, you know, four days later, maybe it was, A week and a half later, it didn't have to be a specific time. But, you know, the point was I checked in and helped her recognize the the point of failure. And then, you know, the next week she had another opportunity to to do it better.
0: So I felt like I had to bring up rewards and punishments because there's such a big issue for teachers who are looking to get their students to behave in specific ways. And the same goes for parents. So I asked Donnie what he thinks about the use of punishments in the context of helping his daughter develop the kind of behaviors he was talking about
1: technically speaking the punishment was having to acknowledge that she failed having to reconcile with her failure so i guess a lot of people i think the the general public's understanding of punishment and reinforcement or reward i don't think they have the full picture She had her own punishment, so to speak, and she had to understand that she failed. She had to take that in and accept it. And then she had to go through the work to figure out what to do better. She had to do it better and change her, you know, it it caused her to have to change up her routine or um, change up her thought process. Um, So that was the punishment, so to speak.
0: Now, Donnie, as a parent, has a lot of great insights. But Donnie, as a behavior analyst, working with families has just as much great input to share. And as he talks about the kind of behaviors he helped families deal with, I think it's important I point out how much of the behaviors being changed are the children's and how much are the parents. And I feel it's important to look at whether it's more, less, or equal between the two, depending on the situation.
1: So when I was working with kids, uh a lot of the parents were at wit's end they didn't know what to do they're exhausted they uh, felt defeated some parents had just decided that their child was incapable of x y or z so part of my job working with kids was actually working with the parents to help them understand that things were possible um, that they that they had the power to help change these things. It wasn't just me coming in there to to make changes. It's hey, I'm only here for two hours a week or whatever, and the rest of the week I'm not there. So whatever effect that I have pales in comparison to what what they're capable of. And so a lot of it was teaching them how the parents' behavior affects the behavior of their kid. And so. Let's say kid, like a lot of kids, uh, had tantrums, right? What you realize in that situation and what parents didn't always see was that they had built up those tantrums. The parents inadvertently had built up those tantrums over time, not realizing that they were doing it. And so, uh, usually starts, nothing starts like full scale, right? It's, it may have started with a small tantrum. Well, again, depending what happens after that tantrum is going to make the next one more or less likely to happen. And so if you get down the path of making it happen by, for example, this is a common one. Hey, if you don't stop crying, I'm not going to buy you ice cream. When you break that down, what just happened? They threw a tantrum and got ice cream out of it. And not to mention, the the time time is a very important factor when you're, when there's a punishment or reward right so they threw a tantrum and in that tantrum in the middle of it <laughs> you offer them ice cream so you know the parent is just trying to get their child to not they're just trying to get them out of that tantrum they're they don't they don't understand like the complexity of what they're doing necessarily but over time now ice cream maybe isn't enough right now the tantrum continues after the ice cream well now you you know so now it goes longer or it's harder it's a louder tantrum or Now maybe they're throwing things or it it, it just, it just gets worse and they, they don't know how at that point they're, it's getting worse and worse and worse and they don't know how to stop the spiral. I'd like to clarify too that there's a lot of consideration that went into the motivation for that tantrum. If something really hurt her feelings and she was crying and, and very upset about something that, that really like hurt her either emotionally or physically or something like that totally different approach to that, right? It, it's, that has to be considered, the The motivation, the why did this behavior happen? And if it was an emotional thing, okay, now my goal is I'm going to support her emotionally and, and show her that I'm trustworthy and I'll comfort her and help her, help her cope with it and, and feel safe and secure, you know, then it's a totally different goal. And I take a totally different approach. That's where I think parents, really benefit from being able to consider why did this happen? What was the motivation for this? And then address the behavior based on that emotion.
0: The last question I had for Donnie called back to the idea that having a goal in mind is important for addressing specific behaviors. As Donnie said, it's way too complex to be effective at managing a behavior if you don't have an idea of what good looks like. So when I asked Donnie, whether he thought schools would benefit from offering behavior training for parents. He had some good thoughts about whether that might be a good idea for parents.
1: So first of all, if the resources are there, I think parents getting behavior training any way they can is a good thing, whether, whether it's you know local adult schools or the, the child school providing it. I also know that there's a lot of parents that would not be receptive to anything like that coming from their school. And, and there's this sort of feeling that like, I'm the parent, I know how to raise my own child. And well, in a general sense, that might be true. I don't think they're, they're willing to acknowledge that they could learn more about it and be better at it. And I'm
0: so glad Donnie brought this up because the idea of adults being unwilling to consider learning new skills or concepts for whatever reason is exactly what the next conversation in this episode addresses. As adults and even college students and teenagers, how we've developed our own self-awareness, our own readiness to acknowledge that we can learn more about something is the topic of a book called Why Students Resist Learning by Dr. Anton Tolman. And when I return, I'll share segments of my conversation with Dr. Tolman and his work with behavior change theories in older students. Dr. Anton Tillman is a professor at Utah Valley University and author of the book, Why Students Resist Learning, which, as you can imagine, looks at specific elements that explain the resistance to learning that educators face in higher education. The model he designed in this book takes our own understanding of self-reflection and cognitive development, and overlaps that with elements of our environment, such as work, family, and even classroom experiences, and shines a light on how these elements can result in resistance to learning, which teachers and parents already know is happening, but can now identify and minimize that resistance by changing the behaviors in both the students as well as the adults. But what really makes his work so valuable is that it's based on something called the TTM, which stands for the Trans Theoretical Model for Behavior Change. This model gives us a conceptual understanding for how, in education, we can intentionally develop the kind of growth mindset that has long been known as effective for helping people learn more. So I'd like to first share a few initial thoughts Dr. Tolman had about education and the connections he's making to the TTM in general.
2: We talk about education as change. So in fact, people will often say, John Tagg famously wrote that, that change is the heart of education. We don't often think of it that way. And yet if you learn something, if you can remember something, if you can apply something you've learned, something has changed in your brain, in your attitudes, in your memory, I mean, There's a whole neuropsychology that I'm not going to go into, but um, there is literal physical changes occurring in your brain. And so the more I thought about that, and the more I thought about the TTM, the TTM is a model that describes how human beings change their behaviors and how they are successful at doing that. What, What are the means by which somebody adopts new behaviors and is able to maintain those?
0: Right.
2: That's what the TTM is all about. And yet I thought, okay, well, I'll look in the the education field and see what people have been doing with change theory. (laughs) And there was like nothing there, uh, which frankly shocked me. Um, I kept thinking I must be looking in the wrong places. And I kept looking and looking and I couldn't find anything. And in fact, the TTM, the advantage of that approach is that not only describes how that change can occur, it describes the processes that are used, the underlying uh, procedures and, and things we go through in order for that change to happen. And that that has been lacking, I think, uh, unfortunately, in a lot of the existing literature.
0: When I first heard of the TTM, it seemed like a pretty abstract theory for behavior change and like many theories, was removed from practical in the classroom strategies. So I asked what exactly about this model attracted Dr. Tolman to think this could be used to improve things like interventions in schools for both staff and students and how this model actually works to help people make effective and lasting changes in both teaching and learning.
2: The TTM has a series of stages that it describes for how people move through a process of change. One of the things that they, the the creators, Prochaska, is the main driver of of the TTM, Prochaska and DiClemente, but they found in a lot of their early research that people start to make changes. I mean, think about New Year's resolutions, right? And it's very common for people to recognize the need for change or think that they want to change, and they start to do a little bit of it, and we can discuss this in detail if you want, but they kind of slide backwards. And in, in the field of clinical work, we call that a relapse, right? Um, they wanted to try and destigmatize that a little, so they called it recycling, and what they actually found is that it's pretty normative when you're trying to learn, um, not just like learn a fact or something like that, but you're actually trying to change your own behavior, that sliding backwards is is very common. What I like about the TTM, especially in an educational context, is you can tell students it's okay, it's normal, you, you know, I'd like you to try these new things, I want you to do these new things. And if the students fall backwards, you mentioned mindset, right? They might say, oh, I'm no good at this. I can't do this. Right. I, I'm no good at math, right? I, I, I'm not an artist, you know, whatever it might be. It's the either or black and white type approach. No, it's okay. It's it's fine to slide backwards. That's That's what happens to most people when they try to change. But the TTM tells you where to pick up. So if you do slide backwards, you can reassess where you are. You can say, okay, I know what I need to do to keep moving forward. And I'll do that again. And what Prochaska and others who've used the TTM in their studies have found is that people who are able to do that kind of dust themselves off, get back on the horse, and they know what they need to do, or they're guided by a therapist or someone. um, They are able to then, their chance of success increases um, Hmm. as they continue this process. They actually draw it almost like a spiral staircase going up. So you kind of go up and then you kind of come back down and then you go up and then you come back down and then you go up. And so that's, that's, that's okay. And students don't have to feel stigmatized mm-hmm. and we don't need to stigmatize them. Mm-hmm. We acknowledge that and you know, sometimes it's frustrating, but um, that's a normal human process.
0: What was really fascinating about what Dr. Tolman was describing was the idea that this TTM model for behavior change might actually be able to help us Make intentional changes to behaviors just by knowing what stage of this TTM we identify with, so that we could make intentional decisions to improve our situation, or even recognizing someone else how to help improve their situation. So I asked Dr. Tolman how he intended to make this model work for people who want to use it to help themselves change whatever behavior they wanted to see changed.
2: One of the advantages of the TTM is, and that's why I developed the tool I did, is to make it visible. What stage is someone in? How do we know? And so the TTM has these five stages, which I kind of parsed into six um, for my own uh, purposes, but um, the, the, the lowest stage, so we'll just use one example for time's sake. Um, And that lowest stage is called pre-contemplation. So this is not even thinking of change. So these are the students that really have no personal narrative about themselves as a learner. They just go to school and the teacher tells them to do X and they do that and that's it. They don't have any sense of themselves as a person that is engaged in learning from the environment around them, uh, at least in the context of education. They, They may do that in their video games. They may do that in other ways but they don't do it in that context. And that's the problem. Um, The main process of change that uh, Prochaska and his colleagues have really looked at for moving people out of pre-contemplation is, uh, it really is, they call it consciousness raising. So if you don't know that there's a reason for that change to occur, if you don't see any benefit to that change occurring, then you're not, why would you change? Why would you do anything different? It takes effort, it's frustrating, right? So why would I do that? Um, and so the whole point of that is if you know someone's in pre-contemplation, then the goal is how do you get them to begin to recognize that there's value in making that change? And the, the cool thing about the TTM, it's actually structured like a triangle. Mm-hmm. And so the stage of change is at the top But the other two corners of the triangle, the other two, you know, angles there are the student's self-efficacy. They're that they're capable of change, right? Which actually fits with prior educational experience and their experiences at home and and cultural things as well. Um, Girls are no good at science, right? That kinds of things that, that have been there for a long time. Um, And the other is uh, what what they call the pros and cons, decisional balance. So it's like a teeter-totter. So at what point does the teeter-totter begin to tip in the other direction? And that's more related to the individual's own assessment of how much worth is there in making that change. And so if I know that, and I can evaluate where a student is or where my class as a group is, I can begin to figure out ways that I can use that information and begin to challenge them to make these processes of change work. And when you begin to do that, you begin to enable them to shift forward and, and to adopt better, more effective ways of learning. The second piece of that though, is you have to actually teach them how to learn more effectively in a very specific and explicit way. Because as you pointed out before, just saying try harder (laughs) does not usually work very well. In order for consciousness raising to work, the person has to, and it's uncomfortable, they have to feel some dissonance. They have to feel maybe what I'm doing isn't working very well. Is there a better way to do this? And so in my own research, so I developed an instrument to assess the student's level of change, where are they in their stages? And then I realized, okay, well, how are we going to begin to push them to think about how to make that change? So I developed another instrument called the Learning Strategies Self-Assessment, LSSA. Um, the reason I did that is because there's a lot of instruments out there that exist that are basically measures of attitudes, student attitudes hmm. about changing. And those have a, that, those have a place They can be useful for different things. But there were hardly any instruments that actually used behavioral strategies for how you can learn better and ask students, are you doing these strategies? And the fact that you could ask a student in an assignment, for example, to to take this survey and they're going to look at the survey and they're gonna say, I don't even know what that is. I've never done that. And so they're putting, no, I've never done that or I don't do that at all. Or, well, I do that every now and then, right? And then you, at the end, you ask them, there's some qualitative questions at the end that say, look at your strengths and your weaknesses. Where are you strong? Where are you weak? What could you do to improve? So that is an attempt at both consciousness raising and kind of fostering metacognitive development, right? They began to recognize, I didn't see you rereading the chapter on that list. <laughs> I didn't see that at all, but there's a lot of things on there I don't do. Sure. And so when that when that assignment and the feedback that they get is framed in that way, it becomes an opportunity for them to actually begin to shift their personal narrative, right? Began mm. begin to say, maybe there's ways of learning that are better that I could use. I'm good at this, but I'm not good at that, right? And maybe I need to work on that. And to begin that process of of doing that.
0: One of the aspects of Dr. Tolman's book is this idea of developing in students a scholarly identity, especially as it relates to the kind of personal narratives students develop about themselves when they attend school. And whether you attended public school, private school, a democratic free school, were homeschooled, or were part of a self-directed learning cooperative, the beliefs you develop while in that learning environment, really played a role in how you developed your identity, your view towards certain kinds of relationships, and your worldview in general. So I wanted to know what led Dr. Tolman to incorporate this idea of scholarly identity into his work with behavior change.
2: The transition that occurs between K-12, high school, and college is an area of interest of mine right now, right? So we're working on something on this right now. But um, one of the problems that if, if you speak to college faculty professors about uh, introductory students, they often have a lot of negative <laughs> assumptions or comments that they make about those students, um, that the students are not prepared that the students don't really want to learn, the students are, they just wanna get a grade and so on. Part of which contributes to student resistance. So that's a piece of that, is, is we have to fix our own wheelhouse. Uh, we have to address our own issues as part of that. Um, but the other part is that we need to be able to help students to change the way they view themselves because when they come to college, they have often, um, a lot of them, especially first-generation students or underrepresented students, often have been just told by people that, well, college, you've got to go to college if you want to be successful in life or whatever. And they don't really know why, other than, well, you get this degree and the degree opens doors for you. And there is some truth to that, of course. Of course. But the problem is that the studies are also showing that the employers are concerned about higher education because that's not enough. And what the employers are most valuing is not, do you know something about the field? Because in today's world, you can learn a lot, you know, on Wikipedia. You know, and <laughs> Google. You can buy some books. You can get a mentor, you know, whatever. And you'll <laughs> learn the content. Yeah. The real problem is the skill development. The real problem is critical thinking, problem solving, ability to work with others, ability to communicate effectively. Those are the core of what makes people successful in life. Um, well said. And yet, those are not things that students think about when they go to school. They don't think, I'm going to school to develop my collaborative learning skills,
0: right? Or my Uh, capacity to inquire.
2: Exactly. My ability (laughs) to, to use curiosity to fuel improvement, right? Or to problem solve.
0: It's a wonderful why statement.
2: It is. And... The image they have of themselves, their personal narrative, we call that, right? Or their, um, their personal identity mm. is not focused on being a learned person. It's not focused on being a scholar. It's about jumping through some hoops to get a, a degree, uh, the purpose of which they don't really understand other than, well, you need it to apply for a job, right? Right. And so when they bring that with them, if we don't shift that, it doesn't Hmm. shift by itself. So metacognition doesn't, there are some uh, MacGyvers out there, (laughs) but metacognition doesn't just like fall out of the blue. Hmm. Um, When I would be teaching students heading into careers in medicine or social work or psychology, when when I talk to them, and in class, I'll say you aren't going to wake up one day in med school or grad school, and suddenly know how to learn better. It's not that's not going to happen. Um, you're going to keep doing the same patterns and behaviors you've done, right? Which, according to the TTM, we call habits, right? These habits that we have developed because you know how to do that, and you feel secure in that, and so that's what you keep doing. Um, The only way we can shift that is if we begin this process of self-awareness and shifting their identity towards someone who is seeking these kinds of opportunities.
0: Listening to Dr. Tolman speak about this idea of scholarly identity, it reminded me of a school I had taught at once where a number of the teachers there were unofficially expecting students to be referred to as scholars. The thinking was that if we call them what we want them to think they are, that they'll become that in their real lives. And I know there are a few schools out there still practicing this. And when I described this to Dr. Tolman, he shared an excellent insight about this particular approach.
2: There was a a time in the field of counseling and so on when they tried to use these kinds of self-affirmations, things like that, as a tool to try and produce change. The overall conclusions is that that doesn't work very well. And I think that's also true probably of learners. So if you just tell them to to repeat these phrases, they'll magically somehow do that. (laughs) But unless that word actually signals a shift in how the professor or the teacher and the students are interacting and the way they're interacting and the processes that are being used it's not going to result in any significant scholarly identity, for example.
0: Now, I can't help but connect what it is Dr. Tolman is describing, not just with how he approaches behavior change with this TTM model, but also the individual's self-awareness of their own thinking, as well as their environment, and how that overlaps to create the kind of resistance to learning that we're seeing in education. And by adding this idea of scholarly identity to the kind of teacher-student relationships we're creating, I can't help but connect all of that to this idea that if we don't make intentional efforts to address the behaviors responsible for the identities we're developing in those learning environments that we're creating, that whatever intervention you put into place is going to fall away once you remove that intervention structure. That it's not going to have that lasting change you want it to have because you're not addressing the things that are actually responsible for change in behavior to take hold long-term. And it really helps me see how this idea of behaviors and the kind of metacognitive self-awareness that Dr. Tolman's talking about is such a crucial aspect to understanding who we are and how we learn. And when I go back to what Donnie Irahita talks about with the kind of behaviors he helps families and children change with intention, and then go even further back to prior episodes, which talk about social and emotional competencies and how we're building trust and how we're building respect and how we're building responsibility and the elements of an environment like structural relationships and norms and traditions, that those outer layers become the vision for which we can then make the changes at this core of who we are and how we learn. So as I bring this episode to a close, I'd like to take a moment to revisit the idea I introduced at the start of this second season, where I talk about capturing a rainbow. The ranges of behaviors for different attributes and the models for behavior change discussed in this episode are not in themselves an explanation for who we are and how we learn. The topics and all of the people throughout this second season are all part of the environment responsible for this metaphorical rainbow. The question to ask is not how this episode answered all our our questions about who we are and how we learn, but how the ideas presented connect with the ideas in the other episodes to help us understand ourselves as individuals and as groups in a way that's meaningful for you and your various communities, both big and small, locally and globally. So I hope you're enjoying this second season, and I thank you for listening. Talk to you next time.